0: The end of the beginning is such a beautiful expression for us to contemplate on this Resurrection Sunday, I believe, but it's also an expression I want to intentionally flip on its head this morning. I want to intentionally flip it around this morning for the Apostle Peter, in his letter of the 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 that we're going to look at this morning, begins our time today by saying this is not the end of the beginning, but instead, this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the end. You take a moment, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, as we look at that phrase in verse 7 that's going to start our time this morning, all the way to verse 11, as he says these following words, namely, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. If Resurrection Sunday has us reflecting on the end of the beginning, Peter says, I would instead want you to focus and put your reflection on the beginning of the end, the beginning of the end. I want to spend our time this morning asking you a question to start this process of focusing our thoughts about everything that I'm going to put before you. A question, though, you don't have to answer, it, please, out loud, but I want you to closely monitor in your own heart what answer it is that you give. Here's the question. How would you live differently if you found out today that the beginning of the end of the world was finally present among us? To say it another way, would you, would you rejoice for finally knowing that salvation is near? Would you panic realizing that you had regretfully wasted the years of your life? Would you turn and run to your children and hold them in your arms and kiss them all over and over again because you know that this is the end? Would you call your friends and your family and plead with them with all your heart to believe in the gospel? As I had even someone this morning ask me, how do I share with my passing mother this moment? What would you do? What would you do? The Apostle Peter in his first letter to the church makes that exact statement to the resident aliens that are there gathered together as believers in Asia Minor and he waits for their reaction as well. He tells them in chapter 4 verse 7, the end of all things is near. The end of all that you see is near, the end of all that you understand is near, the end of life as you know it has finally arrived, the time is now, the time has come, the end is finally here. Now when you first hear those words, we might react to it by saying, what exactly is the apostle saying? What does he mean the end of all things is near? The world hasn't ended since he wrote these words 2,000 years ago. So the question is, what exactly does he mean? When I look around me, I can tell that the sun still rises and the mountains haven't moved. So in what way did Peter mean that the end of all things is near? Perhaps we might believe, as some do, that he was wrong. We might believe his eschatology wasn't yet fully developed, Perhaps Peter, as he evaluated the circumstances around him, he misread the signs of the times, as Jesus says. Could it be that the writers of the New Testament were mistaken? Could it be that they looked for the return of Christ at the end of the world in their own day and generation, yet these events didn't take place? Could it be that they were just plain wrong? And yet, as we begin to contemplate this idea, that assertion, it kind of draws us down to the problem to that kind of thinking, because right here before us in verse 7, it's been permanently embossed into the pages of Holy Scripture for 2,000 years, so it must be true. The authors of Scripture could have erased all such statements from the New Testament manuscripts as they began to realize that the end of all things had not yet happened in their lifetime, but they didn't do that. They didn't go back and try to reverse statements that they had written. These men who found these documents after the death of the apostles didn't scratch out these statements to attempt to avoid such embarrassment or the accusation of error, though they could have. So in what way then must we have believed or they believed that the end of all things was at hand? Some believe that Peter is predicting the impending doom that was about to crash upon the first century church the last few chapters of this letter have been specifically focused on the theme of suffering we've gone over that you know that deeply and therefore Peter might be prophetically uh, warning them about the inevitability of persecution and death historically speaking however Nero, the wicked Roman emperor, was just beginning to promote genocide for the Christians. Historically speaking, Nero was about to begin that lighting his garden parties with Christians dipped in tar and set on fire. Historically speaking, we know that this fanatical hatred for the church was raging in Nero's deluded mind. So Was Peter somehow privy to some kind of celestial preview of coming attractions that had been kind of leaked to him through his inspired pen? Was Peter telling the readers that Roman guards were on their way, the end is near? Was Peter granting a premonition of annihilation that was going to occur? Or is there something more here? Is there something more to what he's written? We don't have any historical papers that tell us of any widespread massacre that occurred in Asia Minor during these days. We don't have any archaeological evidence that paints the portrait of mass execution of believers having taken place in Rome during this time. Some theologians might point to the fact that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was about to come to fruition. So Perhaps Peter had been thinking and pointing out this upcoming great and terrible moment in biblical history was upon us, but certainly that wasn't the end of all things, the end of sacrificial system, yes, the end of the priesthood, yes, the end of all things, no, no. So what, we might ask, what does the great apostle mean when he says the end of all things are near? Some might say that Peter said the end is near because the consummation of history occurred at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. In him, one author writes, time was invaded by eternity. In him, God entered into the human situation. In him, the prophecies were fulfilled. In him, the end has come in that sense of the expression. Speaking of the writing of the Old Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten, eleven, that they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The Apostle Peter, when he's preaching during Pentecost, as we just heard Pastor John mention in the Scripture reading, that the prophecy of Joel pointed to what was happening to them in their day and that these things were being fulfilled in the last days. That's earlier in chapter 2, verse 17. So all the major events of God's plan of redemption have already occurred and now all things are ready for Christ to return and rule. So perhaps in this way, Peter is speaking about the end of all things is at hand. The New Testament speaks of the end coming in different places. The Apostle Paul says the time to wake up out of sleep. It's time to get awake for the night is far spent and the day is at hand. That's Romans 13, 12. The Lord is near, he writes in the book of Philippians, chapter, two, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. The coming of the Lord is at hand, writes James, James 5, 8. John says that the days in which his people are living are the last hour, 1 John 2.18. The time is near, says John of Revelation. And he hears the risen Christ testify, surely I'm coming soon, Revelation 1, three and 1 chapter 22, verse 20. So rather than thinking of the world history in terms of earthly kings and kingdoms, maybe Peter is thinking in terms of redemptive history. So from that perspective, if you're still with me, all the previous acts of the drama of redemption have been completed. Creation has been completed, the fall, the calling of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the kingdom of Israel, the exile in Babylon, the return to Jerusalem, the birth of Christ and death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension to heaven, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, establishing the church. So the last great act of the church aid had been continuing for 30 years, and so maybe by this point, when Peter's writing the letter, he is saying that the curtain is about to fall at any time, ushering in the return of Christ and the end of the age. All things are ready. All things are ready for the end, the end of all things. The goal to which all these events is leading is at hand. The goal is near. The Greek word here for the end, telos, is is a Greek word that can have the meaning not just the end as the finality of an event, but also the end in terms of the goal or the summation of an event, the purpose, if you will, of a certain thing has occurred. So maybe that's what Peter's intention was here as well. The end of all things is near. What does it mean? Well, there is one other perspective I want you to consider this morning as we open up this chapter, and that Peter could have been driving at by saying that the end is near, that the perspective applies to each and every one of us in this room this morning. It applies to us in a very inescapable way. The one thing that can be said of every man and woman here in this room this morning, even on this campus and even on this planet, is that he and she will surely die. Every one of us, the Lord is near. In that way, we cannot tell the day or the hour when we shall go to meet him, and therefore, every day of our lives is lived in the shadow of eternity. In this way, the end of all things has come. For each one of us personally, the end is near. And you see this particular perspective being made really more clear even in his chapter here, more clear even by the fact he's been speaking of death contextually. So first, concerning the final judgment of unbelievers, verse 4, of chapter four we covered that last time he says they will give an account to him as ready to judge the living and the dead then in verse six of chapter four the same chapter he goes to speak of the believers who have died and were judged in the flesh by the world through death but were protected by the will of God to live in the spirit after death contextually he's been speaking of death of all people for two verses Yes, and the end is at hand then. The end is at hand not only in the judgment of persecutors and slanderers, but the end of persecution and sufferings, the end of our great conflict with sin, the end of our earthly probation, and Peter is telling us, prepare yourself to meet God. Peter speaks of this again at the end of verse 17 of chapter 4. Once again, just 10 verses later, he says, for this it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So now that he's been writing for four chapters to these first century believers who have been in the throes of persecution, it's interesting that Peter decides to write out this one sentence to make this crystal clear. All things, the end of all things is near. The end of this life is near. The end of all that has once called itself life is near. The ways of family, the ways of business and of fashion and of culture and everything that you can imagine is coming to an end. The end of life, as you know it, is fading away and you, my friends, are fading with it. Our time is short. Life is coming to an end, regardless of your age and strength and vitality and all that you might think yourself to be, the end of you Is at hand. Paul addresses this at the very end of his first letter in the Corinthian church when he says in 1 Corinthians 7, you don't have to turn there, but it's verses 29 through 31. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who cry as though they did not cry and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice and those who buy as though they did not possess and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it for the form of this world is passing away. The earth as we know it, the time as we know it, the universe as we know it is passing away. So I say this to you just because... Here's the question once more, how would you live differently if you found out today for certain that the end of the world has finally come, for it has, it has. Well, before you answer that question, just so you know, uh, Peter himself is going to answer it for us in this text. And I think you're going to find this very encouraging. From verses 7 to 11 of chapter 4, Peter goes on to cite some life imperatives that could consume your thinking because the end is near. The end of all things is near, therefore, he's going to tell us what we should do and how we should think. And interestingly, think of this if you've been following us. You don't have to do this. None of what I'm about to tell you has to do with this world. They don't have to do with the people who are contributing to your suffering right now. What he's going to tell us doesn't have anything to do with the government or business or issues in your extended family. In fact, they don't have to do with unbelievers at all. Here in verses 7 through 11, we're going to see Peter placing his entire attention on one thing, one subject. Now that you understand that the end of all things is at hand, focus on how you want to deal with those in the church. What? What? Once the full weight of the understanding that this life as we know it is ending, use the rest of your time on earth focused on how you treat those believers who surround you in the church once you face the fact that your life is coming to an end don't isolate don't run don't hide don't become invisible give yourself now fully to god's people so he's going to give us if you're taking notes this morning three responses three responses to the reality that the end of all things is near and all of them center around how you treat believers in your midst not unbelievers in your midst not the people who torment you, not the circumstances of life that threaten you, not the government, no, 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 no. He's focusing here because the end of all things is near. Center your thoughts, how you treat believers around you. That is his thesis this morning. Because the end of all things is near. Center your thoughts on the church. So we have here three holy reactions to knowing that this life is ending with the aim of building up others in the church. Three holy reactions To know that, knowing that life is ending, that has the aim of building others up in the church. And they're very, very simple and they're very, very profound. This is that. I'll give them to you up front pray, love, and serve. Pray, love, and serve. Pray for each other, love each other, serve each other. These are your marching orders for the rest of your days. Very simple, but very, very necessary. So let's look at them together. First, if you're taking notes, because the end is near, number one, pray. Because the end is near, number one, pray. And you're going to see that in the last half of verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound thinking and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Therefore, Peter writes, because the end of all things is near, wrap your head around this, because God is ready to judge every man and woman living and dead, because God can make us alive, and only God can make us alive in the Spirit once we die, prepare yourselves to pray. Martin Luther once was asked what his plans were for the following day, and he answered, work, work from early to late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. What? Martin Luther was a leading spiritual revolutionary. He was preaching and writing and pastoring and translating the Bible into German and being a dad and being a husband. He was incredibly, incredibly, overwhelmingly busy. His calendar was always full. And yet, in spite of this incredible workload, he found it absolutely necessary to pray. He had to meet with God before he met with the cares of the day. He would not dive into the day without first being refreshed by the Lord. He knew that he couldn't serve the Lord well without first asking God for help. Jesus was the greatest example of the necessity of prayer. Jesus was given the task, he's our Savior. He was given the task of constantly being swamped with people and ministry opportunities. He was constantly being pressed on every side by very needy people, and yet he always carved out time to pray with his Father. He always had time to pray, sometimes throughout the night. He would set aside ministry opportunities so he could spend more time seeking the face of his father. What both Martin Luther and the Lord Jesus Christ have in common was this. They both realize the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, pray. Why is this their reaction? Why is this Peter's reaction for us? Because prayer is the chief means of expressing your total dependence upon God when the trials of life are the greatest. How many of you this morning... When I ask you the question, uh, what would you do if you found out the end of all things was near? Answer the question in your soul with the answer, prayer. You don't have to tell me, prayer. But that's Peter's first answer, pray. Because the end of all things is at hand, pray. Pray. Now let me point out that Peter isn't saying that you should pray because you're not praying. That's not the implication. That isn't the idea being expressed here at all. He, he's saying because the end is near, you should be preparing yourself to pray in a certain way with a certain kind of attitude. So he gives some preparatory comments about how to enter into the state of prayer, and they're very, very important. Verse seven, he says, because the end is near, be of sound judgment. Sound judgment, be clear-minded. So it can be used as a contrast between one who is right in their mind and one who's demon-filled and not in their mind. In other words, it's a call to see things rightly. It's a thing to have a right perspective about the things around you in your world. Think rightly about what's transpiring around you. When You witness an ongoing sea of social media burning up the airwaves. When you you witness wars and strife and transgender madness and woke ideologies and attacks on our children and the repression of truth and the people believing lies, you need to be praying with right perspective. You need to be praying about what's happening all around you with a right mind. Also, he says in verse 7 here, he speaks of being sober, which is interesting because he just exhorted last time believers in verse 3 not to no longer pursue a course of drunkenness and drinking parties. Instead, now he says, so be sober-minded. Don't be intoxicated. Think clearly. It's a call to remain alert and full in possession of one's faculties. Be in control of what's going on around you with with a pure heart and a clear mind. One author writes, Christians should be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness that results from befuddled views and feelings about the future. So you connect all those thoughts together if you're still with me. Then the message is be clear-minded and full possession of your faculties when you pray so that you can pray with a biblical mindset about the world around you, about what's happening to you because of suffering. The suffering, because of the immediacy of our lives ending, because of the massive flood of virus mandates and governmental control and predictions about economic uncertainty, Christians can tend to pray with panic. We can tend to pray with a reaction to the fears around us rather than a reaction to the faith within us. You you ever see somebody speed down the traffic on the freeway in front of you going like 100 miles an hour, total disregard of the safety of the people around them. And so in your frustration, you pray, oh, Lord, let all four tires explode at the same time. <laughs> I, I haven't either. I've never, uh, Because that would be praying with not sound judgment, so I've never done that. Peter says, make sure at the end of the, your life that you're praying intelligently. Biblically, not according to your own will, but according to the will of God, thy will be done in your prayers. Believe rightly so you can pray right, rightly. But Think biblically during times of distress so you can pray biblically during times of duress. The Christian's prayer shouldn't reflect a complacent kind of fatalism either, like, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, so I guess I'll pray. Because that's wrong too. Rather, their prayer should reflect a heartfelt Desire to see God's from see the perspective of life from God's perspective of life, to be dependent upon Him as I pray with His mind. And contextually, when you look here in this prayer, also has to do with the purpose of focusing not just on your own situation, desperate as it might be, but also on the suffering of others in the church that you would be praying for one another. Pray for the believers in Ukraine. Pray for the believers in Russia. Pray for others within the body of Christ who are truly suffering. Be clear-minded enough to think that it's not just about you. And that brings us to the second reaction that Peter instructs us to have once we understand that the end is near. Not only pray, but, number two, because the end is near, love. Love. Because the end is near, not only pray, but love. And we see that in verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, above all things, the Christian's survival in the end is always connected to how they love. Ironic. They must fervently or persistently Continue in their love for one another. So instead of going inwardly, instead of going inside, instead of being consumed with your own kind of thoughts and and feelings and your own dilemmas and your own suffering, the Bible here says, direct them to depend on one another, to love one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. And let me comment on that phrase just for a moment because it's probably one of the most important and least understood phrases of all of Scripture when it comes out in this idea of how should we love one another, especially in our homes and our marriages. What does it mean to cover sins? How can love do that? Does it mean that when someone in the church sins against you that you just shrug it off to yourself and go, no worries, I'm a sinner too, I just keep it coming? Uh, I mean, does their sin go unaddressed? Is that what it means? Should there not be a confrontation? Isn't there something in Matthew 18 about a private meeting between a brother and the and one who sinned against you? Isn't that the idea between, behind Galatians 6.1? Well, let's first look at the place in Scripture that Peter most likely is borrowing this idea from, which is Proverbs 10.12. Again, I, just to put your eyes on the spot, Proverbs 10, 12, we actually brushed by it and spoke of it when we were in the Proverbs. Uh, It's a very famous, of course, section of Scripture, chapter 10. But when you look at what Solomon has to say about this, and this is most likely, again, like I say, where Peter was drawing from. Proverbs 10, 12 sets up a contrast for us. I think that's very helpful because it contrasts the words and ideas being expressed when we have a better idea of what Solomon and Peter most likely are trying to address. Proverbs 10:12 says hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Now I want you to notice with me here there's two contrasts mentioned here. First, hatred versus love, and the second is stirs up strife with covers all transgressions, okay? So, if we understand hatred to be the opposite of love, then we can understand stirring up strife to be the opposite of covering transgressions. Does that make sense? So, you have these two contrasts here. So, in this context, what is covering transgressions? The act of not stirring up strife, the act of not making the transgression against your other person a matter of personal antagonism of not allowing the sin against you to fill yourself up with such resentment that causes you discord to those around you. To not making their sin to you a big deal, if you will. That's Solomon's point. Now, if you go back to 1 Peter 4, 8, and you understand that the end of all things is at near, love one another in the church above all else with an intentional purpose to love that doesn't allow bitterness and resentment to make you stir up strife among your brothers and sisters. There should be confrontation of sin. There has to be. There still should be repentance and restoration. But no matter what happens, your love for others should not become your life obsession. Let it go. The primary goal in your Christian life is not to stir up strife with other people between brothers because you've been so personally offended by this man or woman. The primary goal of your Christian life in the church is to love others without your spirit being in such discord with your fellow believers that you can't cover it. Verse 9, in fact, he goes on, "...be hospitable to one another without complaint." Now, some people would take this as an entirely different action and reaction to knowing that the end is near, but I think you can umbrella this under the same idea of covering sin with love. If, If you're called in this idea of hospitality, if you're called to take someone in, if you're called to provide a meal or give shelter or entertain a stranger or open up your home, whatever the reason might be, don't do it with a complaining spirit as if you would do it on the outside, but resentful of it on the inside. Be open-hearted. Be open-hearted towards one another. Even if there is an absence of warm feelings towards some in the church and relationships are strained, be hospitable. That's where we get the idea of hospital. Be hospitable. Make your home a place where healing and love is offered. When he says be hospitable, he doesn't use the word as an imperative. He uses it as an adjective, which suggests that he recognizes that they're being hospitable, but they could be even more. You're opening up your lives to one another. That's a good thing. But now that the pressure is on, do so even more. I say pressure because if you opened up your home during the time of Peter's writing for the purpose of worship or fellowship, it is very likely that you could be targeted by the Roman authorities and the culture for persecution. I'm sure that's what brothers and sisters are experiencing in Ukraine. The request for hospitality in the first century should be interpreted as a request for further suffering. You want to join with me in suffering. You want to join with me and meet with me as believers and suffer more. Really loving your brothers in these last days would include accepting that risk for the sake of promoting Christian love to your brothers and sisters. And sometimes a believer would agree and sometimes they would complain about having to do it. Risk myself, risk my family, just to be hospitable. Allow him to hurt me and who took advantage of me to come and worship here in my home. That could be the feelings that they had for one another. Chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that there had been malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander in the church, persecution, or even the threat of it, perhaps, heated up the tempers among them and their relationships. But now, Peter says, by chapter 4, verse 7, that we know that the end is near. Now that this culmination is happening and we feel the tide of history coming to our very forefront, he says, love one another with everything you've got. Pray, love, pray, love, be hospitable. You know, I don't think we think about it much when we come here to this beautiful campus and we enjoy so much of just what we understand to be corporate worship in this house of worship that the first 200 years of the church, there were no buildings designed for the church. There were no buildings designed for the church to meet in. The church was compelled to meet in homes of people who had enough space to accommodate believers. I mean, we read about that if you're taking notes in the home of Aquila, Priscilla, Romans 16.5, 1 Corinthians 16.19. The the church was in the house of Philemon, Philemon 2. So if it weren't for the hospitality of those in the church, there wouldn't have been corporate worship at all in the first century. But you see, the fact that things are coming to an end is a game-changer. Peter is saying, and the more you're aware of this, the better. Instead of disconnecting fully from loving others in the church, open yourself up to the church. Become more vulnerable. Let people into your life. Be seen in the church. But that comes, of course, with some challenges. Alexander Stoltz, in his book, Love or Die, makes the following comments. He says, believers cannot encourage one another to love if they don't meet together regularly as a family. Our growth in love is not just an individual exercise. Love requires both subject and an object. Thus, love is in a corporate learning experience. We grow in love by engagement with other people, not in isolation from them. Christians cannot develop love by sitting at home alone on the couch watching TV preachers or by attending a weekly one-hour church service. It's only through participation in the household of God, the local church with all of its weaknesses and all of its faults, that love is taught, modeled, learned, tested, practiced, and matured. And then he says this, the local church is a spiritual workshop for the development of agape love And one of the very best laboratories in which individual believers may discover their real spiritual emptiness and begin to grow in agape love. If you're not participating member of a local church, then you are not in God's school of love, end quote. So Peter says fervently, love each other from the heart. Keep your love fervent for the church, for one another. There's a third, final reaction that Peter gives us considering the end is near. Not only are we to pray because the end is near, not only are we to love because the end is near, but lastly, we are to serve because the end is near. Because the end of all things is near, serve the brethren. And you see that in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 4. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. I think one of the most fascinating aspects of Peter's mind here is when he's confronted with this prospect at the end is near that he doesn't try to convince his readers with that idea to withdraw from the world, uh, to start a campaign to save their own souls. He he urges them instead to go out into the world and serve others in the church. Because the end is near, serve. Serve. That is the idea is so counterintuitive, but it seems so survival-oriented for the present situation that we're in. He tells them, serve one another, come alongside one another, allow each other to manifest the love by praying for one another, be hospitable to one another, and wash each other's feet. And he tells them two sides of serving that you need to understand in a very basic, primary way. Everyone, and you know this, has a special gift that the church needs. Everyone. And everyone needs to use that gift as if from God, for it is from God. So let me just think about that in the time we have left, just to think through the gift we have and the reason we are to use it. For now, look at what Peter is saying verse, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift. So notice, please, he says, each one has one. Do you see that? Each one has one. My father used to say, uh, each uh Uh, each one reach one. He was talking about evangelism. Each one reach one. And Peter says, close, Stan Patton, it's each one has one. He doesn't say if you receive a special gift. He says rather as each one has received a special gift or since you have received a special gift, everyone has one. There are no useless members of the body of Christ. If you belong to him, then you have a giftedness that is from him. You're receiving this gift. It's an aorist tense verb that indicates there was a historical point in time when you received the gift, namely your salvation. This gift, this charisma, is from the same Greek word where we get the word for grace. It's emphasizing it's a gift. This is a gift from God. It is given to you. It was a favor granted to you by God, not because of anything you did or anything you did not do, but because he wanted this gift to be given to you. And not only to you, Peter tells us this gift is for us. This gift is for us, for serving one another, verse 10, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So your gift exists and is for us. Your gift was given to you for me, and my gift was given to me for you. But during times of suffering, that can get pretty mixed up. There was a story I heard one time of a young man who was given the gift of a storm shelter by his father. And knowing his son was going to move to the great state of Kansas where I am from and most living there in Tornado Alley, which I understand, meant that sure encounters with massive storms would happen. His father, who was a contractor, had a storm shelter of the most expensive kind designed and built on his premises. Well, the very night that the project was complete, just as the sun was beginning to set, Sirens began to roar all around that little Midwestern town. Three twisters had been sighted by radar and the warnings were being heard for miles around. And instantly, upon hearing the sirens, the young man ran for the shelter, shut himself tightly in, thanking God for this special gift that his father had provided. Well, as you might imagine, within a few moments, we begin to hear on the steel door, 10 of his neighbors who were left unprepared, were desperately yelling for access. The tornadoes were approaching. Their own shelter was in disrepair. Their door had been suddenly ripped off by the violent winds. And they cried, open up, the storm is coming. To which the young man cried, this shelter is for me. It's my gift given to me by my father for my usage, not you. And then the shrewd neighbors yelled back, yeah, well, our father gave us food and water as a gift. How about we strike a deal? (laughs) Realizing his selfishness and the fact that he had neglected to store new storm shelter supplies, the young man opened the door, invited his neighbors in, and his gift was for their survival, and their gift was for his. It's just a simple little story, but it makes the point. God has made us all interdependent. We're all interdependent, and the diversity of the gifts is a means that he designed to create greater unity within the body. Each gift being utilized to feed the entire body as, it, as a tributary from one heart. And as the impending doom of all things are closing in, Peter says even more, share what God has given you with each other. You are stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, nothing that you have been given is yours, friends. You're a steward. It's not yours. I remember very distinctly when we were years ago teaching to the boys just about life itself. And we were renting a house from one of the members here at Grace Church back in Culver City. And I told them, I said, this house is not ours. We're renting. And my boys were just blown away this doesn't belong to us? This isn't ours? And I said, no. And then I went a step further. I said, in fact, the clothes that you're wearing right now are not yours. They <laughs> said, what? Did we steal them? I go, no, no, no. We, we bought them, but, but it's just for a short time. I said, do you know everything that you see in this room and everything that you're wearing right now will one day be at the bottom of a pit covered over by mud and dirt? I know it's a little intense to teach children. <laughs> I was in one of those moods that day. It's true. It's true. Nothing belongs to us. We're stewards. Your gift was not given to you for your own enjoyment, but for your own refinement. And your gift is just one of the manifold graces of God. There are many, many in His wide assortment of grace, but the one He gave yours to you is yours to employ. So the first emphasis is, because the end is near, use your gift for others. And then in verse 11, he emphasizes another aspect of this serving, namely, that as you serve one another, serve as if it is God working through you for others because it is. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. If you have a speaking gift that's to be exercised in the church, then you need to understand that when you speak, you're speaking on behalf of Almighty God. Again, the idea is that your gift is not for you, but your gift isn't even about you. you. If you have a speaking gift, you can pretty much automatically detach yourself from any idea that that gift was given to you for any advantage over others because as you speak, you realize that it's God's thoughts that you utter and not your own. It was said of one great preacher, first he listened to God and then he spoke to men. So it's not a matter of your own opinion. It's not a matter of your own speculation. It's not just a sermon or a counseling session where you get ideas about being expressed from your own mind. No, your gift is from God. Expressing his thoughts to his people, and that's a massive responsibility. Responsibility. Then Peter addresses the serving gift, though your speaking is a service as well. He divides these gifts into speaking and serving gifts. He makes it easier kind of to make the point. We have lists in the New Testament. We won't go over all of them now, but just so you know, that define further speaking and serving gifts. You can go to Romans 12. You can go to 1 Corinthians 12. You can go to Ephesians 5. But for now, Peter says, let's just keep them in general so you can kind of understand what I'm saying. If you serve, if this is your gift in the church, remember, oh strong man, that your service is by the strength that God supplies, not because of your natural ability to serve. Whatever talent you might have when you're watching Jubilant sing, this is a master... Master musician. This is a man that has so much control over his voice and his body. But when you look at his eyes, you can see that they're focused heavenward. He is doing it as an aroma unto God. He is doing it as a sacrifice unto God. If you serve like him, whatever your talent might be, whatever uncanny strength for service you may possess, it didn't come from you. It came from God to do his bidding. So the purpose of all this, if you see, is what? The glory of God that God may be, verse 11, glorified through Jesus Christ. So in all things, God may be glorified. In all things, in all expressions of your giftedness, it's for God, for him belong the dominion forever and ever. And forever and ever is the end of all things, isn't it? Forever and ever. Even the fact that Peter would in this section with such a wonderful doxology about the eternal praises of the glory of God contrasts very nicely with his pronouncement at the beginning. The end is at hand. And then he says, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. J.C. Ryle ends our time by saying, we are all going, 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 whether imminent or unimportant, gentle or cruel, rich or poor, old or young. We are all going and soon be gone. The houses we love, the riches we accumulate, the professions that we follow, the plans we formulate, the relations we enter into, they are only for a time. Everything about us is dying but our souls. Your trials, crosses, and conflicts are all temporary. They will soon come to an end, and even now they are working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Fight your daily fight under the steadfast conviction that it is not only for a little while and rest is not far off. Let me say that again. Fight your daily fight under the steadfast conviction that it is only for a little while. And rest is not far off. The cross will soon be exchanged for a crown. No wonder the poet says, change and decay all around me I see. O oh, you who does not change, abide with me. So eternity is coming. And prayer is necessary. Eternity is coming. So love one another from the heart. Eternity is coming. So serve the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson from your servant, Peter. We come here with two wonderful focuses. The resurrection of your son, the fact that death no longer has a sting for those who are in Christ. For in him, we too are resurrected. In him, one day, we will see him face to face in eternal bodies meant for glorifying you but we also know that until that day comes we're still here and we're still here and focused and seeing the world around us changing so quickly and expressing itself so deadly that we just really have our eyes focused heavenward asking ourselves what are we to do now thank you for your word that is so clear we are to pray We are to love, and we are to serve. And help us to do all three of those in this context, even this morning, for it's in your blessed Son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you know. Well, first of all, you're like out a minute early, so you can go to, like, I don't know, whatever uh, thing you're going to go to. Uh, Brunch is over, sorry. Uh, But... I have the next few Sundays here in a row that I'm going to be able to preach. John gave me some opportunities because he's really busy. So we're going to finish 1 Peter here in just a few weeks. And we're going to get to do it like within like the next month. So if you want to know what Peter says for the rest of the book, I'm here. <laughs> have a great Easter. Bye-bye.